The reading today is from uh, James, and it's um, from three different chapters. The first is James 1, 9 to 13, then 2, 1 to 13, and then 5, 1 to 5. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms, falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? but you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you have failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Good morning. <clears throat> well, if you were listening to those readings, I bet you're looking forward to this sermon. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the gift of a new day. 
And we thank you for the scriptures. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our hearts. Give us understanding. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help me as I speak. And you'd lead us all into your presence. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've joined us recently, you will know that uh, we're having a very short sermon series on themes from this letter of James. Now, James is a very challenging book for a number of reasons. It's not everybody's favorite book by any means. Martin Luther wrote it off as a letter of straw, which seems uh, I would be hesitant to do that. Number one, because it is in the scriptures. Number two, James is Jesus's brother. And it's never good to uh, slander the boss's brother, I would have thought. <clears throat> Nevertheless, let me just try and help us with a couple of introductory points, just to the letter of James. I think one of the things it really helps to know is the kind of book this is. In the same way as uh, if you reach for a telephone directory, and very few people do these days, I'm not even sure they're still printed, so reach for a train timetable, let's say. And if you reach for a train timetable and you start to read it, expecting it to be like a detective story, you will be sorely disappointed. Not many people I know read train timetables before they fall asleep at night for pleasure. No one sits down and says, oh, I've read a really good passage. Cambridge, 9.15. King's Cross, 9.45. You know, it just... Well, no one I've met yet, but in Cambridge, there are always surprises around the corner. <clears throat> in the same way, if you go to an Agatha Christie book, say, to try and discover what time the next train leaves to London, it's not going to help you very much. The point I'm making is different kinds of literature are good for different kinds of things. And you have to approach them slightly differently. Most of us, if someone hands you a poem, and it's obviously a poem, it's kind of written down with that kind of format that poems often have, you, you make a mental adjustment, don't you? You think, oh, this is poetry. I'm going to read this slightly differently. And within the Bible, we do this um, customarily. So if you read a psalm, you probably already have got yourself into a gear that you're going to read it in a different way to say the letter to the Romans or one of the Gospels. Now here's the point. James, I think, is written very much like the book of Proverbs. It's a wisdom book. It's got scattered wisdom on different topics. And if you try and read it as if it's a sequential book, one paragraph following another, like Paul's letters, you'll quickly run into difficulty. You can do it that way, but you'll really struggle. Because it's much more as if there are things rattling around in James's mind and he lobs them at the reader rather scattered through the letter. And that's why we're looking at themes from the book of James. And today's theme is particularly challenging. And it, it would be challenging anyway but it's made more challenging by James because he seems to be so in-your-face confrontational. 
That's his style. We all know people like that. They tend to lose friends quickly. But to make difficult points, it's quite a good way of doing it sometimes. Because if you faff around too much trying to be subtle about it, there's a danger people don't actually hear what you're trying to say. Well, with James, there's no danger of that. He's so in your face. And so what I think I do when I read James and when I read these passages, I think I sort of brace myself. And actually, I have double standards. I I read in Scripture various things about Scripture. I read things like this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making the wise simple. No, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And I like all of that. I read elsewhere that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I think that sounds good. And then as I read the scripture and it starts to teach me, rebuke me, correct me, and train me in righteousness, I think that's not so good. But we need to pay attention. Where we are challenged, we need to pay attention because maybe God is trying to get through to us. So what is the topic today which binds these three different passages together? I think it's simply this. What riches can do for people and what poverty can do for people. And it turns out that James must have been a very observant guy. It it turns out that he's very perceptive and that he has spotted things going on in the family of God which grieve him because he sees they're in danger of destroying God's new creation, the church. And so in this rather simple sermon, we're looking at three different passages and they're all to do exactly with this topic, what riches do to people and what poverty does to people. And here's here's the first points coming from the first passage in the very first chapter. The impact of riches or wealth and poverty on self-esteem. The impact of how we see ourselves. So let me read the little portion again. James 1, verse 9 to 11. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who's rich should take pride in his low position because he'll pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. And what James is drawing our attention to, what he's observed is the poor are prone to feeling inferior and the rich are prone to feeling superior. And this doesn't wash in God's family. That's what James is highlighting. The poor who are disadvantaged in the world and the run of everyday life can easily suffer the same way within God's new community. They feel marginalized. They feel of less worth than the rich and they carry a sense of struggle with them into the church. But in God's sight, from God's perspective, things look very different. Because scripture tells us consistently, God is close to the poor, 
to the empty, to those who aren't so full of themselves, they've got no room for him. Bishop David Shepherd wrote a book called Bias to the Poor. It's a pretty influential book, actually, in which he highlighted a theme. This theme, the bias for the poor, consistently runs through the scripture. Needless to say, the book didn't go down well in all quarters. But James, the author of this letter, we know is Jesus' brother. And we need to remember that Jesus' family was dirt poor. We know that because after uh, the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph go to the temple and they make a suitable offering. And their suitable offering is a pigeon. And uh, it was a, the pigeon was what the really poor gave to God. So we know James has the experience of what it's like from day to day, week to week, year to year, to be dirt poor. He writes from that perspective. And we know actually also that this is a highlight in the scripture. Paul says pretty much the same thing to the Corinthians. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. God chose the foolish things of a world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of a world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So James is saying the rich need to be on their guard in case they become too full of themselves. Verse 10, the one who's rich should take pride in his low position because he'll pass away like a wild flower. And there's some debate as to whether it's the person who passes away or his riches who pass, pass away. But it could easily happen that instead of the rich realizing their vulnerability, they celebrate their superiority. And it's not difficult to see why this would be so, is it? If in the world your influence is such that when you say jump, people jump, then it's going to be very difficult to leave that attitude at the door of God's family. Much easier to carry that with you into the community of God's people. There's a little anecdotal story I heard, which I'm sure is a joke. I'm not suggesting it's necessarily true. But it illustrates the point rather well of two people who uh, went into a church in the city of London to pray. And uh, one of them was extremely wealthy, it was very obvious, by his dress. And the other was extremely poor, and that was equally obvious. And they both found themselves at the front of a church, kneeling to pray. And the man who was very wealthy pulled out his wallet, pulled out a number of notes, gave it to the poor man, got up, who got up and smiled and walked out of the church. And then the rich man got back on his knees and said, right now, God, I want your undivided attention. And that sort of illustrates, in a semi-humorous way, an attitude which is obviously so entirely wrong. But it's not a million miles from the attitude that James says has crept into God's church. And of course we know, but we need to hear it from time to time, 
We know that the riches that God might have entrusted to us, we know they're not permanent. It's like that old story about a conversation on the top of a bus. Two people heard talking about someone who had recently died. Did he leave much? Answer, yes, everything. And, you know, that's true. That is, that is evidently true. And as we read, and as I read this and was preparing his talk, I thought, well, look, come on, James was writing 2,000 years ago. These attitudes have long since gone. Oh, yeah? No. In fact, I find it very interesting that attitudes we might just think have crept around in our affluent age are just as present way back in James's age. And I think what we should say to ourselves as we read passages of scripture like this is it's obviously much harder to shake off these attitudes than we think. Somehow or other, the world all over has an ingrained attitude, adopted an attitude that the poor have brought it on themselves and the rich have made it due to their talents. But scripture would challenge that. Many years ago, I worked in the city, and uh, there was a legendary man who worked in Lloyd's, the underwriting uh, agencies. Uh, this man was so influential in what he did that people would queue for up to eight hours to see him. And uh, he wrote so much business that he was known as Goldfinger. And uh, you can imagine what it might do to your self-esteem to have people queuing up for up to eight hours to spend five minutes of your time. And um, over a period of time, something went drastically wrong in his life and it fell apart. His influence completely folded. Uh, he lost all the money he had and he left his job. And I heard from a friend of mine, just in conversation uh, one day, he said, you know, I saw so-and-so this morning and he was just walking around the city and all the people that used to queue for so many hours to see him crossed the road to avoid him. And actually my friend said, so I, w I felt sorry for him and I went to have a conversation. But that's a drastic illustration of what James is trying to say. Humble yourself before God because it could happen to you. And your real worth has nothing to do with your monetary wealth in God's family. So, this is the first point from verses 9 to 11. Don't get above yourself and don't get below yourself either. Because what we're worth is everything to do with God's love for us. The second, the second aspect comes from chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. And it's not so much how we view ourselves as how we view others, the danger of favoritism or prejudice. Chapter two, let's just have a look at the first few verses. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit on the floor by my feet. 
Haven't you discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, this is challenging, isn't it? Because the church generally has so often behaved like this and legitimized exactly this kind of behavior. So it's not so long ago in the history of the church that there were named pews and certain people were allowed to sit in certain pews. The Lord of a manor had the so-called best seat at the front of a house. I remember going to a, um, one of his summer Christian celebrations, kind of jamborees, and there was a, a get-together in the evening of um, some invited guests. And one bigwig walked into the tent and someone whispered to me, you watch that man. In the next 10 minutes, he will talk to the 10 most influential people in this tent. And he said that to me as if that was a good thing. And the thought did hit me straight away. Actually, if Jesus walked into this tent, he would probably talk to the 10 most lonely people. This is what James is saying. That kind of partiality, that kind of favoritism, uh, it's, it shouldn't happen in God's family. Or another illustration, just so we know that um, <clears throat> it's not James's problem and it's gone out of date. I, I was talking to a, a friend a few years ago who said he'd been visiting a church many, many, many miles away from here. And he said the person leading the worship behind the keyboard seemed to be doing an extraordinarily bad job. Uh, he, he was playing badly and he was singing worse and uh, it was awful. And um, so my friend, who is a, a church leader, asked around the congregation, and obviously I've changed the name for this, and said, tell me, why is Fred leading the worship this morning? And the answer came back, well, he employs 80% of us. Well, you can see the dilemma. But what's behind that, isn't it, is partiality, is favoritism, is this guy is appointed because he's got cash in his back pocket. Uh, that shouldn't be happening in God's family, says James. You might say, you know, the well-known little idiom, he who pays the piper calls the tune. Well, no, not in God's family. Don't dishonor the poor. It goes completely against the grain of a kingdom. And I was thinking to myself, just to bring this right up to speed and date. So, when we move back into the revamped HT, and we have a few celebration evenings to say thank you, does that mean we don't invite the chief benefactors to the front? Hmm, nice one. I don't actually know who the main benefactors are, so there's no danger of that happening. Uh, and you're welcome to a seat anywhere. <clears throat> but to give us a, a global perspective, here's another angle on what James is saying, which I think is interesting. There's a scholar called Philip Jenkin who's made it his life study to watch what God is doing right across the globe in the different religious groups. And he wrote a book called The Future uh, Kingdom. And he makes a point based on statistics, not on emotion, not on, just on data, that he considers Christianity to be the most influential world religion. And when he is being interviewed, uh, it, he was asked, well, if, it, if that's the case, why don't we hear about it? Why don't we know this? And he said this, the people in the West seem almost blissfully unaware 
of the rolling growth of Christianity in the global south. So one wants to ask, how have most people have managed not to pay attention? And he said, there's a cynical remark that's none the worse for maybe being true, which is that people in Europe and North America really aren't very interested in the poorest of the poor. If you're a poor person in Ethiopia or Uganda or Peru, you don't show up on the radar screen. And we're dealing here with countries that aren't even in the third world economically. We're dealing with the very, very poor. Islam has registered in the last 20 or 30 years only because we see it as politically threatening. Maybe some Christians somewhere would have to take hostages before anyone would really notice that they're there. We were praying early on, we'd be praying later on, uh, for the team that are going to Zambia on Monday. And this is about, I reckon, the 14th, maybe, maybe slightly less, maybe the 10th uh, team that have gone from here to work in the slums in Ndola in Zambia. And I know, if it's anything like the previous trips, and I've been on one of them myself, I know what will impact the team and what they'll come back and say. They will tell us they have encountered the unmistakable joy of the Lord that amongst people who are living on less than one dollar a day, they discover the joy of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. God is stirring all over the world, but you need to look in unexpected places to see it. So getting back to this point that James is making, what he's challenging us about is, are you seeing and are we, are we seeing and reacting to the needs of people around us? Or is it that the poor are going under our radar? And of course, it's really uncomfortable, this question. Uh, <clears throat> and it's being asked outside the church as well as inside the church, isn't it? Who took note of the inhabitants of Grenfell Flats in London before the fire? And is it because the inhabitants were refugees and migrants and poor that they were overlooked and treated as they were? And would it have been different if their economic circumstances had been different. They're very challenging, these questions. Actually, from that illustration, credit should be given where credit is due, and the churches were interested, and the churches did have relationships, and the churches and the faith groups did move in very fast and very well organized, and were trusted precisely because they hadn't been blinded by the economic circumstances of those living in those uh, flats. Well, now to the third area, uh, and this comes from James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. And here the aspect shifts. And James focuses simply on the power that comes with wealth. And there's a general consensus also that the people that he's writing to have shifted, and he's probably not actually writing to Christians at this point. He has probably actually got his focus on people who are outside the church. But the dangers are real. And so just look at the first six verses. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of a misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen 
who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent people who were not even opposing you. Well, what he's saying here is that riches have tremendous potential and they can be used to bless others, but they can also be used to harm others or exploit others. And he's quite specific, actually, in where his objections lie. And they are in hoarding wealth, even if it's hoarding it and preferring to see it wither, rather than using it to bless others. In those days, apparently, one of the things that rich people invested in were clothes. And they would store their clothes and then sell them, hopefully, at a profit later. So their investments were investments. thought you'd like that. And uh, when moths ate their claves, obviously their, their wealth went to pieces. And um, James is saying, you even prefer that to reaching out to those who are in need. Now, you can remember that Jesus himself said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourself treasure in heaven we have a different perspective of what treasure is. Don't waste the opportunity to do good, is what James is saying. Secondly, the thing he doesn't like is in verse four, exploiting others, failing to pay people properly. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your field are crying out against you. And you can imagine, I can imagine back in those days there wasn't legislation, there weren't workers' rights, and uh, James is prodding the church or the employers are saying, this just simply can't be right. And it's one of the interesting things that commentators on scripture point out, that the Old Testament God has a heart for social justice. And so provision is made for the powerless, specifically for foreigners, for sojourners, as they're put, for widows and orphans, those who had no clout at all, God cares about them. And so there were various sets of rules. For example, if you were harvesting a field and you left behind some of the gleanings of the harvest, you were not allowed to go back and do it again. You were told to leave that for provision for those who had nothing. Well, James doesn't like to see, because God doesn't like to see, the poor being exploited. And the third thing that James points out and, and um, gives them a hard time over is Overindulgence. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. And one of the things that riches could do if we're not careful is to blind us to the situation of others, even to the extent of not noticing the impact of our own lifestyle. You will have read many times the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 16, and he begins it like this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate there lay a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores. And I only just put these little passages alongside James so that we recognize the consistency. It's not like James is just having a bad hair day so he wrote this letter. He is actually bringing home what Jesus talks about. 
So, in conclusion, why does James point these things out so bluntly? Well, amongst the reasons is this, surely, that the family of God, the church, is the hope of the world. We're meant to mirror, we're meant to reflect God's kingdom that is on the way to coming. We're meant to be different from the world. We're the new community in God's image. And what unites us is exactly what we're going to celebrate in a couple of minutes. It's Jesus' death for us. Jesus' love for us. Jesus' open invitation to us, rich or poor. That's where our worth lies. We know this in our heads. We have to live it out from our hearts. The most valuable treasure we have, isn't it, is that Jesus died for me, poured out his love for me, and fills me with his spirit. And so we pray, don't we? Lord, change me from the inside out. And if, like me, you're challenged by the passages we've looked at, if, like me, it seems to you that the shoe pinches in places and it's uncomfortable, then the thing to do is to surrender this to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, how is it that you can help me to shape up to fit the shoe that you've designed? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the scriptures. And we thank you for your heart of caring. Thank you for how perceptive James is. And that his words and observations of so many years ago still have traction with us today. Lord, we want to be your family that really authentically represents you. So continue to move amongst us. Continue to stir us. Continue to free us up to live a life that is abundant life. In Jesus' name, amen.